Today's scripture reading comes from Jude, verses 1 through 16. Jude, a servant of Christ and brother of Jesus, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Grace and Peace. My name is Vincent Hoppe. I'm the pastor here. If I have not met you, I would love to hang out with you and uh, talk and answer questions about grace and peace. But now, for the next two weeks before Advent, we are going to be talking about Jude. Not Hey Jude, John Lennon style, the book of Jude from the Bible. And Jude is a really forgotten and overlooked book. It's stocked full of these apocryphal stories. I mean, come on, we're talking about like Michael. Archangel here, Enoch, and what is written, and that these are primarily written to a Jewish audience that would be familiar with these stories. And these 
stories are used as English for monocle of straight. They are written in order to get people to react in a particular way. So it's rhetorical effect and imagistic language for the fact that they that Jude wants them to do particular things. To one, not be like those people. Like that like that, that is seen here. It is written probably between 60 and 65 A.D., not 1960 or 1965. It would make a lot more sense because this is pretty far out there, man. It is wild. But it closely parallels Second Peter in style and illustrations. And it seems that Jude served as a bit of a template for Second Peter. Um, or that both were probably borrowing from a familiar preaching at the time. And then someone might obviously ask, well, this doesn't matter. Where is it? You know, truthfully, it probably doesn't matter. You want to know why? Because it's in our Bible now, and we've got to do something with it, right? We've got to understand what is it teaching us, and what is it trying to get at the heart, in our hearts. And so I would have to say it's relevant today because there are many little variations of Christianity. And it might be difficult to decide which one best fits uh, with uh, what has been passed down. Also, we have to admit that many people have been hurt by false teaching, lawless and non-accountable teachers and leaders, people who are narcissists. And these people, their libertines at heart, their lawless at heart. And Jude tells us that there's this seed in all of us that, that, that we are to contend, though, for this faith, to avoid that seed of libertarianism, of freedom in our heart. We're not talking about the political libertarianism, but we're talking about how it gets to the heart. Faith is used many times in the New Testament as the concrete teachings regarding Jesus as it has been passed down according to the witness of the apostles. And so, as Jude is talking to particular people, I'm reminded of a phrase that one of my professors says, and he says, many a heresy has been espoused in a quest for originality. And so there's these people who, uh, without referencing any history or background or authority, except the authority of their own, is espousing heresy, and it is coming out in their particular actions that are licentious. You see, we are a church that has creeds and confessions that unite, but they can also divide. It lets you know who belongs based on their confession and who doesn't. It is a launch pad of force for mission, for unity, and it is also a fortress to defend. So Jude is a bit of a halftime speech for a young team. Or maybe it is the uh, conductor of an orchestra that wants to get his orchestra or his uh, symphony together on the same page. And what does a halftime speech usually entail? It's usually this. You're not done yet. Gets down on their eye level and then you start to say, you need to remember the fundamentals, the basics. If it is football, you need to remember to block and tackle. Make sure you wrap up. Make sure you plant your feet. 
And so, this is reminding them to be disciplined. Don't take shortcuts. You can imagine the desperation in his voice if he's trying to tell them, don't be like Cain. Don't be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't be like those people. He's exhorting them with every bit of language that he could possibly have for them to do something else. He's imploring and pleading with his young church not to depart the faith, to stick to what is basic, to contend for the faith, remembering Jesus saves and Jesus judges. The modern person, though, we don't like that. The modern person, like you and I, we like our freedom. We don't really want to believe that our stories or our, our, our little lives are part of a bigger story. You know, we don't like being told what to do or being told who we are. We want to make ourselves something. We're the, we don't like being told what to believe. We approach religion as a bit of a buffet line, and we take the teachings of our life from here or there. You see, the only creed that we like is the one that we have adopted for ourselves, and that creed is the freedom creed. The freedom to choose for ourselves. We're people of no creed. We say things like, I have no creed, but the Bible, which, that's a creed, by the way, okay? You are just making a statement, all right? And so we don't like authority, but yet we are still people who have creeds, okay? Uh, I know this because political season, everybody has a long sign of something stating things like, we believe in science. Someone else doesn't, okay? Uh, Black lives matter. No human is illegal. Global warming is real. Law and order. Second Amendment. Strong border. Truth. Trump. Healing. Freedom is everything. You see, all of these are just creeds. And we put them on our lawn sign, and we refuse to say that we've got any creeds in church. You see, every one of us bends the knee to something or someone, and that faith can be summed up in a creed. Whatever we're worshiping, the substance of that is espoused in a creed. We all have them. We all have, we all have a love, a primary love, and we worship something or someone that will constrain us we become slaves to it. This letter, then, is important for us today as we examine the hidden dangers of the church filled with people who are, lord, who are lords of our own little kingdoms. It is why, to be honest, we need to be honest as a church about the sexual sins of our leaders. We need to be honest about abusive church leaders. We need to call out the moral relativism whenever there's power or politics of prayer. We need to call out church leaders who pray, preach grace from pulpits like these, but yet rule with iron wills and abusive tactics in the little narcissistic kingdoms of their office. The kingdom of God is put in tension with the kingdom of self-determination, the kingdom of self-sovereignty, the kingdom of selfishness. Jude is a letter to the church to get them to focus on the basis of the teaching that has been passed down, which will eviscerate the kingdom of self and self-authority. Jude doesn't rely on his status as apostle. No, nor is a half-brother of Jesus 
He calls himself a servant, or to be translated as a slave. He is bound himself to the love and authority of, his, of Jesus Christ for the rest of his life. And this obligation to Christ empowers his pleading to hold fast to the truth that Jesus is Lord and they are not. Jesus is worth living for. And therefore they are dead to the kingdom of God. Are, we are all to die to the creeds of self-centered freedom and live for Christ's exalted service. And in doing so, we will find true freedom, true life, and how to be truly human. Jesus said uh, to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jude is a half-time speech, y'all. It's a call to art. It tells you to fight, to lose all claims on your own life and find your true life in Christ. It is a rally cry for this church to make war on sin to make war on the sin of license and self-authority, the sin of self-governance. It is a call to contend for the self-denying faith in Jesus. So Jude pleads with the church. And he says, contend for the faith. Because Jesus saves and Jesus judges. So first, Jesus saves. Notice that this, this is addressed to. First, it talks to those who are called, beloved, and kept. He's reminding them of their identity. And this identity is one that is not up to you, but is received in Christ. So their identity as a Christian is one in which that is conferred to you passively. And so you sit there and you receive it. And notice it says, in verse says, to those who are called, the active working agent is not the one who receives it, but the one who bestows it. And so God calls their passive recipients. In John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to the Father unless he who sent me draws him. Paul tells of God in his call, When he who had set me apart from when, before I was born, and who called me by his grace. That, so they're always called at the initiation of God Himself, and they are called out of a particular life. Ephesians 2, it says, they are called out of death of trespass and sin, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of work and the sense of disobedience. Or in Colossians, it says that they are called out of being alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He calls you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So He's always calling you out of something. And what is this out of is that he's calling you to? It is out of the kingdom of self. The kingdom that always thinks about me. The kingdom of me is what he's saving you out of. That is the way of the world. That is the spirit of performance and morality that is determined only by yourself. It is the kingdom of a life that is achieved. It is the belief that your identity is only one in which you make, rather than one that is bestowed upon you in Christ. And it is tyrannical. And so you are called out, and you are called to the life and kingdom of the beloved Son. 
you are then brought into in the, you are, the love of God the Father is bestowed upon you, and you are beloved. And it is not one that you earn. This identity of being loved by God is one that is received and not achieved. They are free from the tyranny of performance. And he goes further by saying that they are kept now by or for or by Jesus. Some translations go with for, meaning to communicate that they are a gift to Jesus Christ. But I think a better translation is that they are kept, defended, are guarded by the steadfast love, the never giving up, always and forever love of God as He intercedes, as Jesus intercedes for them before the judgment seat, that He is the one who is judged for them. He's the atoning sacrifice, the finished work for His people. He's the performance that you and I all need. His performance becomes my performance. And He holds you tight to the end. Perseverance of the saints is possible only by the preservation of Jesus' work for you. We hold Jesus tight and cling to Him tighter because we are secure in His firm grip forever. And Jesus, then Jews then pray that mercy, peace, and love will be multiplied or overflow to them in abundance. Why? Because these are the traits of those who are saved and have experienced that mercy, peace, and love. That those who bear that mark and who have experienced it and let the love of God run them over like a uh, car on the freeway, then they will bear the marks of love, mercy, and peace. It is one, it is one in which that mercy does not pay back what the other deserves. It is the peace that does not do it by avoiding conflict, by con- but by confronting the things that cause bitterness and envy and those things that ultimately destroy community. And lastly, love. They are people to sacrifice to one another. They are to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of another instead of taking advantage of one another for their advantage. In the end, love sacrifices. Love dies to self. The problem with the spirit of the age today, though, is the spirit of freedom is that you're free from any external constraint, whether it be religion, authority of your parents, or your DNA, your history. And in this, this libertarian freedom really is just tyranny cloaked as agency. It is slavery masquerading as independence. You see, if it was up to yourself to make yourself whatever you want to be, then you're continually constrained to the tyranny of self-creation, self-promotion, and moralistic performance. Ultimately, you will be judged by God, the outside world, or yourself. And you or I know that when you determine to yourself that I can only be the judge for myself, you know, every time you look in the mirror, you judge and condemn yourself. Because who in the world could possibly live up to their own standards? Imagine that there was a recording of you and every one of your moralistic standards that you had, and it was, you know, you had this little tape recorder around your neck following you all the time. 
in the end, the only judgment that God ever needs to condemn you is what? To press the play button on that. There's no way you could possibly live up to your own moralistic standards, let alone God's. You see, this freedom is really just tyranny. You see, only until you understand that your performance is judged, that you have the verdict before the performance, that your judgment is, that is in, that you are justified, you are loved, you stand as righteous before God, and it's not based on your performance, but it is freely given to you, then you're free to love others. You're free to give up your rights. You're free to care others. Because in their joy, you find your joy. The beauty about being a Christian is not that you have to, but that you get to love God, serve Him. Because in His joy, you find your joy. Ultimately, they're to contend, Jude says. Contend for what? Contending, though, is not just kind of the pursuing lackadaisically, but it comes from the word that we get agonized from. They are to put themselves through the ringer. They are to put themselves under pressure and into pain in order that they would see and know the beauty, that they would make it to the end, that they would persevere. Let me put it this way. I hate rain. I hate it. But in order to get in shape, I have to persevere. I have to put myself in the agony by stepping outside in 30 degree weather in some running shoes and little short shorts to go running and freeze in order that I may achieve the goals that I have. So that's what you do, is that you put yourself in the pain. And so the things here that they are to contend for are the basic teachings of Christ crucified and raised according to the apostles' testimony. The faith would contend that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is the propitiation for sins. Jesus rose again, Jesus reigns, or as Peter put it. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Being killed by the hands of lawless men. Oh, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Or as Paul testifies, Oh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Or, as our forerunners in the first and second century testified about Jesus, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin. 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And the third, and he descended into hell. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So contend for that thing. Contend for the faith that frees you from performance. Contend for the love of God in Jesus Christ, which is God's never-ending, always and forever love. A love that calls you. A love that is set upon you. And a love that keeps you. You contend for that kind of faith. But many in our day have approached the Christianity that's a lot like the cat in the hat. Right? You see, mom is just that. Mom doesn't know. Mom's out of the house. But then comes in this little sneaky, strange cat. That sneaky, strange cat rolls up into your house wearing a hat and a strange automobile. The story should end with, and they shut the door and called 911 because the creeper has walked in. Okay, that's the way it should have ended. And then they let thing one and thing two get out of the, 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 the automobile, and you're like, oh my goodness, maybe this is the 60s, this is last night. Anyway, but many of us have this approach, right? In the story, two children are encouraged by some sneaky cat to make a mess and disregard the laws, love, and commandments of their mother. Jesus says, those who love me follow my commands. But, of course, they can make this because, you know, she will not mind at all. Uh, she's away, not looking. They forget her love and instead make terrible mischief. But they must remember. They must remember that she's coming back. And she's going to judge that mess. You see, so Christianity today is like, I will get my life together. Yeah. I will address those things before she comes back. But when Jesus comes back, I don't know. That's all I'm okay. And Judas said, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. You need to start putting stuff in order now. Why? Not because he's going to smack you, but because he loves you. Remember your identity in Christ and you are beloved. Faith is demonstrated then in mercy, peace, and love. Mercy toward roommates who leave their laundry in the dryer over and over again. Mercy allows kids to be kids. Allows them to you know, understanding that they leave messes. That they're noisy. They're clumsy and will spill their milk 300 days of the year will realize that kids are completely incompetent whenever it comes to operating the seatbelt and can't get themselves in the vehicle. And we're like, just fuck a lot. And then you start real rationalizing. Like, in the 80s, we didn't even have seatbelts. You know, and, yeah. and your wife is like, stop it. Anyway, and so you're merciful. Then you seek the peace. You seek what is best. You seek the good of others. And then you love. And that uses your time, talents, resources to be poured out for the goodness of others. For the joy of others. But Jesus saves, but he also judges. Jude encourages the people to contend for a faith by describing those who have crept into the church and who they are to know their unfortunate end. 
And so he juxtaposes that this is who you are. These are the people, these, those who are called, he says. Those who are beloved, those who are kept. And he juxtaposes them against the these people. At the end of our text, if you notice, the chief describing word for these people is ungodly. Who by their ungodliness do ungodly things. Isn't that the coolest, weirdest thing of any ever? Makes you wonder what was he trying to get to get the point. Don't follow those people because they are unrestrained. They have a freedom to themselves. They're following their own authority, their own freedom. Don't be like them. And so he uses this to say they are, they are, they are destined for condemnation. They pervert God's grace and sensuality. Basically, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. They are people who are not anchored or tied to the faith. They don't have a relationship with God. They deny the only master, Jesus Christ. For the Christian who finds their life inverted for their life, secure in Christ, the judgment is comforting. Knowing that his calling, love, and keeping is what, what keeps them secure. Only in Christianity do you get the verdict before the judgment, before the performance. Because Jesus got your judgment, so you can have his verdict. If your performance does nothing but condemn you, you see, your performance does nothing but condemn you. And his performance saves and keeps you. And so he then pushes and anguishes and with, with those not to be like those who are lawless. And so he goes to verses 5 through 7, he uses these illustrations. There were faithless, those who were faithless in Egypt, what happened to them? They were judged. They died. There was also these rebellious angels. What's going to happen to them? They're going to be judged. Then there was the, the sexual sin and license of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it illustrates this point. That we should not seek to be like that, because their actions, by their actions, they are denying the faith. They deny Christ which will be judged. Sin at its heart is lawlessness. But it is not just breaking the rules. It is breaking the heart of God. It is rebellion. Cosmic treason. It is finding salvation in my own performance than in the salvation of Jesus Christ. Sin can look really moralistic or it can look very licentious. Because both deny Jesus' work for them. Let me stop this. you and I are probably thinking, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, bro, you really got to talk about that. Okay, we'll talk about it. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah has been discussed a lot. On one side is the quick condemnation that all who are gay are to be condemned to hell. And that the church is to disassociate with those who are gay without any discussion. Often this manifests in the church being very loud about these condemnations, especially in the culture controlled by the pro-LGBTQ agenda. They've spoken about it as the primary sin of the culture, they say, and they bring it up every Bible study. The opposite side, though, are those who are affirming, saying that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah lacks the hospitality toward God's angels. Therefore, the condemnation, they say, is not against committed same-sex relationships, but rather against inhospitality as it has manifested itself in violent sexual appetites toward the same sex. Really complicated, I know. I would argue, though, that both sides are not reading well. Notice that in this instance, 
It is used as an illustration for a type of people that out of their appetites, their actions spring. Well, what is the summary of these people? In verse 8, it tells us that they rely on their dreams as they're an authority to themselves. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. It means this. They are lawless. They are still in rebellion. And by their actions, they demonstrate a heart that is still in rebellion to God. The trespass of sin comes from the estate of sin. The activity of sin comes from the heart of sin. And the gospel, though, of Jesus Christ is that the hope for both the trespass and the estate is found in Jesus, in His redemption. It means for us, for those who are opposite-sex attractive and for those who are same-sex attractive, both need to bring our sexuality under the rule and reign of Jesus instead of our self-authority. Our sexual lives are to be lived according to the ethics of God's kingdom. The hope of healing for our fallen and broken sexuality is not the suppression of our sexuality, nor is it in the affirmation of it, but in the redemption of it, which is only found in Christ. If you have serious questions, push back. I understand. It's a volatile and sensitive subject for our time. And I will discuss this with you. Please see. But Jude mentions that these rebellious, sexually licentious teachers are as there are these people that are found in 8, 10, 12, 16, 19, saying this that they rely on their dreams. They are felt they're kind of looking to themselves as their own as their own authority. That they blaspheme all that they don't understand, things like angels and spirits. And he illustrates this further by evoking both Cain, who is judged by his brother, who, who judged his brother to death, hungry for approval, then Balaam, who is motivated by the appetite of cash, and Korah, who hungered for power. And each of these groups were judged. Each rebelled in their self-authoritative way. In the danger, he calls them, Jude then calls them hidden reefs, which unsuspecting ships would destroy themselves on as a war- without warning. He calls them shepherds feeding themselves. It is leaders who only care for themselves and will never care for you. Like a pastor who preaches grace so to get away with their abuse. He calls them waterless clouds. They look promising but are without refreshing help from the heat. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, meaning they give no life-giving fruit, nor shade in the heat. They are uprooted, meaning that when the winds come, when the storms come, they are easily blown over. There are wild waves which churn up, and as they, in their insecurity, get louder and louder and more boisterous, what do you see? You see the ungodliness of that nasty foam rises to the top of the waves. The wandering stars, which cannot be trusted by sailors to leave the safe harbor. And he says, for whom the gloom of utter darkness, judgment is reserved forever. He will continue in verses 14 through 16. He calls them grumblers, 
mouthing stuff, following their own desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. They are using and abusing God's people. And how do you resist it? He says this. Contend for what is true. Contend for the faith. See, these people are destined for judgment. They keep contending for that which is there to keep contending for that which is true and lasting, to remember their identity, that Jesus saves, but he also judges. And we're all headed down this course though. You see, if it wasn't for Jesus' saving work in our lives and for calling us out, the flames of hell and judgment that are lit quietly and in secret in the hearts of us all will rage one day in our self-centered sin to consume us from the inside out. If we don't repent away from the kingdom of self and toward the kingdom of Jesus, we will all be consumed by our sin. So judgment, though, also saves. How do I explain I hate going to the doctor. You want to know why? Because the doctor is going to pronounce some sort of judgment on my life in order to change a particular habit that I do. When I was living in Las Cruces, New Mexico, a doctor one time got my blood work back, and he says to me, gee, your cholesterol is really high. And I'm like, it's hereditary, it's normal. I yeah, but I think, and then he's pronouncing his judgment, you should cut out cheese. To which I responded, as if he condemned me to hell, like, it's like saying no more happiness. What are you saying? No cheese? I was going to be destroyed. So he pronounces this judgment on me. You see, there are all, people are always making diagnoses. And Jude makes this diagnosis and he says this You and I, all of us are terminal. But the only way of being saved is death. Either it will be in the death of self. By the death of Jesus for us, or it will be the death of ourselves and the coffins of our own freedom, of our own authority. But only by dying are we made alive. Because in Jesus, he was dying the death of freedom, freedom from God. Jesus, the one who cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Freedom from our friends and family and their expectations. Jesus looked down on those who would betray him, and he stayed on the cross. Freedom from the expectations of others. They jeer 